Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit FightRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's show. My special guests are Mark S. Burroughs and John M. Sweeney. They are the co-authors of the book, Meister Eckhart's Book of Darkness and Light, Meditations on the Path of the Wayless Way. This book of Meister Eckhart's Meditations is for people seeking the wayless way. It is not for those looking for a simple path. Many people in our time still go looking for a straight path toward a defined goal without detours, led by a guide who tells them what to do and what not to do. They would be uncomfortable with Meister Eckhart, a Christian mystic from the century of Rumi and Francis of Assisi, who said to take leave of God for the sake of God. These fresh, stunning renderings of his writings in poetic form bring life to one of the great spiritual voices of any age. They reveal what it means to love God and find meaning in darkness. In a culture that craved light, and what culture doesn't, Eckhart, Eckhart dared to imagine that the darkness is what matters most. John M. Sweeney is an independent scholar, critic, and writer. Several of his books have become History Book Club, BOMC, Crossings Book Club, and QPB Selections. He has served as an editor at Jewish Life and Pericle Press, and is currently the editorial director at Franciscan Media. Mark S. Burroughs is a poet, translator, and professor of religion and literature at the Protestant University of Applied Sciences in Bochum, Germany. His poetry has appeared in Poetry, The Cortland Review, Southern Quarterly, Weavings, and a number of other periodicals. You can find out more about Mark by visiting his website, which is www.msburrows.com. Dot com, and it's M-S-B-U-R-R-O-W-S dot com. And, you, and John Sweeney is active on social media, uh, Twitter and Facebook, and you can find him at John M. Sweeney, and that's J-O-N-M-S-W-E-E-N-E-Y. So, welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having us. Thanks, Robert. It's a it's a pleasure. I enjoyed reading the the, the book and the renderings. Um, it sounds like uh, Meister Eckhart is one of my kind of folks. <laughs> so um, I'm looking forward to informing the listeners uh, about him. So let's start with John. Um, how did the collaboration for this book come about? It was an interesting origin, Robert. Uh, Mark and I have known each other for a long time and have worked together in different contexts. Um, I was I was privileged to be one of Mark's editors and publishers uh, years ago, and that's how we got to know each other when he was doing some of the translations that he does from the German. This was a, this was a Rilke book, which is a lot of Mark's work in the world is on uh, Rilke. And we then spent the next several years off and on having conversations about how we should we should work on a project together and and this idea then came to us uh, after a few years of those conversations uh, the idea was uh could there be a way to present the thought of of Meister Eckhart the uh the sort of the quintessential uh medieval christian mystic who can speak to all people regardless of religious tradition or spiritual practice, or none, uh, no religious uh, tradition or specific practice. 
And we were convinced that we could represent uh, Meister Eckhart in a way that could speak to a, a 21st century reader in a way that um, I think your introduction of us uh, referred to Rumi in a way that the the poems and meditations of Rumi or um, Hafiz, for instance, have inspired so many in our time. So we then undertook undertook that task to uh, uh, re revision, represent, um, uh, re render uh, thoughts of Meister Eckhart in poem form. And that was what the first book was, Meister Eckhart's Book of the Heart. And that, I, I don't remember what year that was, uh, 2018 maybe? I mean, it was several years ago now. And then there have been two more books since then, and the one that we're here talking about is book number three, Meister Eckhart's Book of Darkness and Light. Great. And, and now, with you, know, you mentioned a little bit about Meister Eckhart as far as a, a Christian mystic um, but, Mark, can you maybe go into a little bit more detail, you know, maybe bringing in some of the um, uh, the ideas of, of – I mean, Meister, isn't that uh, – Master, isn't that like an uh, – Right. Way of, okay, can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, who was this Meister Eckhart? Well, he was a Dominican, uh, and that means he was not a monk. He was a friar, and uh, the Dominican order was founded – uh, early in the 13th century, so the beginning of the 1200s. So it had been around for a few generations by the time this young man, whom we know as Eckhart, or Meister Eckhart, uh, became a novice in a city, a fairly prominent city in that day, because it was right on one of the main trade routes uh, in Turingen, a place called Erfurt. So he comes from Erfurt. He joins the community as a as a novice, as a young man, probably 15 or 16 years old, uh, and eventually uh, was educated both in Erfurt and later in in Cologne and finally in Paris, and went on to become one of the most prominent, provocative, uh, controversial uh, voices. Uh, in the Christian West in his own day. He was accused of holding heretical ideas, uh, 19 of them, by his bishop in Cologne. He appealed that uh, condemnation, as he was um, entitled to do, to the, a papal tribunal, which was um, meeting in Avignon, because at that time the papacy was not in Rome, it was in southern France, he went there to defend himself. He did so ably, and somehow on the way back, he disappeared. We don't know when he died. He never uh, returned all the way to Cologne. So he's a kind of a mystery figure in a way. We don't know exactly when he was born. That's not that unusual for medieval people. They didn't have the kind of birth, race, uh, birth uh, certificates and registrations that we have today. But the fact that we don't know when he died or where he's buried is is puzzling. Uh, but that's uh, that's who he was. We call him. He came to be called the Meister, which was really his academic title. Everybody who went through the university and finished a master's degree—that was the highest degree at the time—would have been known as Meister. But he had that as an honorific title because of his privileged position in the world of disputes, theological debates in his own day. It certainly sounds like a, a fascinating character. Um, now, uh, and, and by the way, you know, either of you can jump into, you know, if you want to you know, add on, you know, to what Wendell was saying. Um, uh, now, John, this book, um, as I indicated in the introduction, is intended for King the Wayless Way. Um, boy, that, that, to me, I thought that was a little bit, um, I don't know, maybe a paradox. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit about just what the wayless way is? Yeah, well, how much time do you have, Robert? <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've got an hour. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the wayless way is, is so appealing to so many of us, but at the same time, 
I think one of the appeals of Meister Eckhart and of these books that Mark and I have created that seem to have really caught on with a lot of people is is that there's an indefinable quality about the wayless way, and there's something strangely appealing about that indefinability. But I mean, I'll I'll, I'll try to uh, I'll try to talk about it just for a minute, sort of in a nutshell. I mean. Uh, Mark was introducing, you know, Eckhart's historical context, and I think that's essential for then sort of what comes next. I mean, everything that Mark said, you know, the way in which Eckhart was traditionally educated, um, the way that he, you know, he heard the lectures of, of the great, you know, Albertus Magnus and uh, Thomas Aquinas and joined the Dominican Order and uh, this this religious order full of intellectuals, and then he became one of the great intellectuals of the order itself and taught at the University of Paris, which was, you know, the Harvard of its day, and lectured on Peter Lombard's uh, classic text that everyone had to become adept at, and he was the most adept of them all and was the meister. Um, but then, you know, so he schooled in this Christian mystical tradition, and his teaching emphasizes the direct experience of the divine in a way that some of those other names that I just mentioned don't so much. And he, and he moves into this area more and more and learns how to talk about it in more everyday kind of a language because he preaches a lot of sermons and a lot of his sermons he preaches in the vernacular. Um, and he does, and he's not preaching them to theologians. Um, and so that's why some of the language then becomes so rich and and um, understandable in one sense, but also mystical and kind of unreachable in that strange appealing way, you know, that I was talking about. So um, where Eckhart, I think, differs from monastic and ascetic and even some of these sort of more theologically sacramental, you know, church-like teachers – is that he he shares the desire for this union with God um, in his insistence that our methods for achieving it, um, this, this ascent of the soul, are themselves attachments that, no matter how helpful, have to, in the end, somehow be stripped away. So there's all of these great ways that we are taught, these spiritual practices that we're taught, whether it's you know, Ignatian practices of the examine, you know, these kinds of things that your listeners might be might be part of their regular practice. You know, the examine or the spiritual exercises or centering prayer or other contemplative practices that we might learn on spiritual retreats or from reading books or from having wise teachers. And these are good things, but Eckhart's idea in the end and his and this, this you know, core of his teaching in the end is that um, even all of our cherished images or ideas or practices that, that try to get us close to God have to ultimately be recognized as attachments, um, and, we're, and we need to strip ourselves of all attachments and transcend those things in pursuit of the God beyond God. And so this wayless way, that's the phrase, the wayless way of Eckhart, is an expression of the inevitable dead end that is every religious practice by itself. So I'll just conclude where I started, which is to say there's something very strangely appealing about that, but it's also um, indefinable in a way and, and hard to get your hands around. Mm. Well, yeah, no, I, would just, I, I would just add to that this beautiful mm -hmm. description, John, that um, Eckhart once several times, in fact, in the sermon, warns us against thinking that the way that we understand God is God. And for Eckhart, the way to un that we understand God is simply a way that prevents us from this direct encounter with God because we easily cling to that way, whether it's the practice of prayer or a habit of thinking or an image that we have of God, and suddenly we're, we're caught with that image or with that practice or with that particular way, and we're, we're lost to God. Yeah. So he even went so far as to say that we must renounce God for the sake of God which will scandalize uh, perhaps some of your, your hearers today. Um, but we have to pause and really understand what he meant by that. To renounce God for the sake of God for Eckhart meant 
renouncing what you think you know about God, because if God is truly God, then God is beyond all of our imagining, beyond all of our thinking, even beyond our experience, because even our experience is somewhat limited uh, by, by the moment. And, of course, God is bigger than, other than, all of this. So he famously described yeah. God often as, as a wilderness, which is a strange <laughs> image, or as a silent <laughs> desert, this place where apparently nothing is happening, but it is a state, really. And for Eckhart, it's when we actually strip ourselves, renounce, relinquish all of the categories of thinking about God, when we renounce God in that sense, that we're open to experience what he called the Gottheit, which could be translated the godness of God. Strange phrase, isn't it? The godness of God. The God beyond God, as one contemporary theologian in Paul Tillich often referred to Eckhart as the one who, who stood for the God beyond God, beyond our notions of God. It, it is indeed uh, an interesting way of looking at it. Now, the idea of detaching from those, from practices and from our, or from our beliefs, it would seem to me that that would rile, you know, those in the religious structure, you know, who depend on um, attachment you know, in order to put forth, you know, their view of what God is. So I would think that that would be um, something that, uh, you know, the the hierarchy, you know, in, in religion wouldn't like. Now, I also think that, you know, in our current state of the world, you know, people are questioning, you know, about God and, you know, and questioning religion um, and dogma, you know, as far as, you know, its authenticity, I guess. So do you feel that, um, you know, in, in today's, does today's world of questioning seem more, you know, in support of um, Eckhart's view? <laughs> I, I, John, you want to start on that one? <laughs> well, sure. I mean, yeah, there was. There's a lot there, Robert. I mean, I, I think. <laughs> okay. Uh, I I am guessing. I'm guessing that it's true as true for Mark as it is probably true for me that we wouldn't come to this work on Meister Eckhart if we didn't, in some sense, enjoy uh, riling up and upsetting the religious <laughs> authorities on occasion. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you can't spend a lot of time with Eckhart and not uh, enjoy how he does that. Um, at the same time, as Mark mentioned when he was giving that historical uh, background on, on him, uh, Eckhart himself understood in his own lifetime that that's what was happening with his own thought. And um, there's, another, there's another figure who was his contemporary, uh, uh, a, a French, a French woman named Marguerite Porret, who was burned to the stake, uh, in 1310. Eckhart went on to live 18 years beyond that. And, um, she was burned at the stake for very similar teachings. So it's not just like Mark said before that, that Eckhart was suspected of a heresy and, uh, never convicted of the same. But there's a way in which Eckhart, I think, chose to, to perpetuate and further the teachings of this other great teacher who had died for them. And it was these ideas that the birth of God in the soul is what, is what our lives are supposed to be about. And that in order for that to happen, it comes through detachment and resignation, you know, a word that Eckhart used, which in our parlance in the 21st century, we call letting go. And then all of a sudden people understand what it means because letting go feels like letting all of those chores and concerns and worries fall away. And that is part of what resignation is, but it's also something deeper 
something I would suggest is maybe a little bit more Buddhist in our imagination, if that helps people to kind of grasp it. Um, but Eckhart created a new language for Marguerite's, um, you know, condemned uh, teachings. And, 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 it, and it came in one of his sermons in particular. Um, I think it's German Sermon 52, but, I mean, Mark will know that better than I will. But it's called the Poverty Sermon, and it's all about how the soul in whom union is realized, divine union is realized, is the, the poor one who wants nothing, who knows nothing, who has nothing. And it's a beautiful reflection on the Beatitudes, which is Matthew chapter 5. And it's that, it's one of those few portions that, you know, people who don't even read the Bible know, kind of know what it, know what it is about. The one that says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the weak. And so, you know, for centuries, people have been trying to figure out what does that mean? Are we actually supposed to, you know, are we actually supposed to think that those things are blessed? To mourn, and to be meek, and to be hungry, and to be poor, and, um, but Eckhart is explaining that, yes, that's actually the, the source to divine union. So anyway, all of that is to say is the people who are, are, are invested deeply in the institutions, whether it's the seminaries who are training priests or whether it's the priests who are administering sacraments um, or a whole bunch of other things, they rely on – a lot of stuff that Eckhart is stripping away and ultimately saying this stuff really ultimately doesn't matter. And so that's bound to rile some people up. Yeah. And that's so well said, John. I would add to that that, of course, Eckhart was celebrating the sacraments. He was preaching regularly. He was part of the institutional church. And this is what was so baffling and so attractive at the same time. Annoying probably to his some of his uh, superiors, apparently not the Dominicans. That is, he was never really convicted of anything or even held in suspicion by people within his own order. But some of the other uh, ecclesiastics, particularly uh, non-Dominican bishops, and there were plenty of them, most of them actually during his lifetime, were not Dominican, they were easily offended by what Eckhart was saying because he seemed to be suggesting that the institutional structures of the church weren't necessary. And, of course, Eckhart would probably have said they aren't necessary. They're helpful, perhaps, but they can also be a hindrance by convincing us that we need to cling to them instead of opening ourselves to the divine who's always within us before we even started to search. I mean, let me read one of the poems that John and I wrote just to give a sense of this, because John pointed to that marvelous sermon on poverty, and this is a poem that was inspired by that sermon. It's called Room Enough. It's from the new book. We talk and talk and talk, and all this brings us no closer to wisdom. If you wish to understand the deep truth that is in God and in yourself, keep still and listen. Become poor in yourself, desiring nothing and knowing nothing and possessing nothing. Only when you are empty of all your chatter Will there be room enough in you to receive the gift of wisdom you long for? And, you know, at the heart of Eckhart is this notion that the vow of poverty, which every Dominican took, which every monastic took as well, this vow of poverty, if it were, were, was only an, out, an external thing, was irrelevant. That the real poverty we need to do to, to commit ourselves to, and this is something that every lay person and priest and cleric uh, is under the same obligation to do, is to empty ourselves of our own importance, to empty ourselves of the, the righteousness of our ideas, the certainty of our faith even, and open ourselves to be, as Eckhart often put it, naked and bare and poor. Naked and empty and poor. Attributes we usually think of as things we're trying to escape. I mean, really, who wants to stand up and be naked out there in the world or to be poor out there in the community or to be empty? But Eckhart was sure that only when we strip away uh, the privilege of our own importance is there room enough for us to see that God is already at our heart in the depth of our being as this little light 
that was always there and can never be put out. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and, that, and, yeah, and and that. Go ahead. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say, and that, and that takes you right back to Matthew chapter five and those beatitudes and the ways that I think even even those people who are in church regularly and reading the Bible regularly and and go by the name Christian would say that they they are not spending most of their lives formed around those teachings that Mark was mm-hmm. talking about, being being naked and poor and meek. I mean, how many of us had parents who taught us to be meek? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, I've raised four children, and I think I'm pretty sensitive to this teaching, but I don't think I do a very good job of teaching my children to be meek. I teach them to be strong and to stand up for themselves and and to not, you know, to not be exactly what we're all supposed to be, which is vulnerable. We're supposed to be open in our vulnerability and willing to be vulnerable and responding, therefore, you know, to a vulnerable world. But we don't do these things well. And this, but this is what Eckhart's teaching was all about. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, uh, in a couple of minutes, we're going to take just a, a short break. Um, but with, with that, the idea of the wayless way, um, you know, and you were talking about, um, you know, certainties. Um, part of, from what I understand, part of the wayless way is is that, um, first of all, it, it cannot be that, you know, and, and quite often we, you know, as humans try to plan everything out for ourselves, um, and that it also resists premature certainties, you know, and yeah. And I think you were kind of talking a little bit about um, the idea of, of certainties. So um, it seems that, you know, for people who are kind of looking for the way or looking for, you know, um, the process for them to, um, you know, to achieve whatever, you know, you know, whether it be knowing God or, or enlightenment or, you know, whatever, you know, their purpose is, that um, the idea is is that um, it is, the wayless way is, is not to focus on that, not to focus on, uh, or the idea is, is that it cannot be mapped. So, right. um, yeah. in a way, are, are people, are people um, kind of, uh, forcing upon themselves, you know, um, maybe a, a process that may actually hinder them from achieving sure. that? Yeah. No, I, I would say, Robert, in the wayless way, first of all, is Eckhart's phrase. It's not one that we came up with. He talks about this pathless path or this wayless way. And, and what's so striking, imagine this. If you were a tourist and you were going, let's say you're going on a trip to Italy, and and you spend all your you spend months ahead of time reading all the guidebooks, you know exactly where you're gonna go, you know, which restaurants you're gonna eat at, everything is booked, and you get there and you rush from one thing to the other. And when you come back, you're loaded with pictures and you're loaded with uh with all kinds of, of information that you may have received from tour guides and so on. But if somebody asks you, What's Italy really like? you might be hard pressed to say. Because you were so planned in the way that you the way you experienced Italy that you probably never left mm-hmm. the guidebook. You never looked up from taking pictures on your selfies on your on your on your phone, and, and perhaps you never even talked to an Italian uh, and and asked them uh, to describe their life. Uh, all kinds of ways in which I think we dull ourselves from experience because we're so over planned, over committed. Over organized and, and over routinized, really. And our relationship with the divine can be the same kind of thing, um, where we're so well planned. We know exactly what we want, exactly what we should expect, and perhaps we'll get that, but we won't get anything more because we've closed ourselves off to being startled, being surprised, being outraged, being disappointed, mm. all of which are incredibly important in cultivating our inner life. Yeah, I, 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 I would, I would, I would say the same, the same kind of thing, but just from a slightly different perspective, which is that I think that a lot of what we do, those of us who are religiously involved still, a lot of what we do is supposed to.
train our heart, um, but it often doesn't. So, for instance, I'm a Catholic who goes to Mass still, and when I go to Mass, I cross myself, I make the sign of the cross when I walk in. When we do the Gospel reading, I make the sign of the cross. When there's a bless, when, when there's a, a general confession, I make the sign of the cross. I mean, it, it's almost crazy how many times a Catholic at Mass mm-hmm. will, will do this. And then, of course, there's the way that we use the kneelers, you know, and and the teaching, you know, the idea, like what your grandparents might have taught you, is that by kneeling physically when you're supposed to, you know, um, when you're sort of commanded to by the by the ritual itself, by doing so repeatedly and um, over the course of the years, it's supposed to train your heart to be humble. You know, the physical things that we do are supposed to train us interiorly. But I think Eckhart was way ahead of his time uh, in that, you know, in the 1300s, he was saying that these things, these special techniques, these, these practices, these, these penances, or things like pilgrimages, um, they only get you so far and they might just be dead ends because they might not be actually getting you anywhere towards finding uh, what it is that you seek which is that wayless way, which is the God who can't be found. And it's something that, that is hidden inside of you, but nevertheless, in some sense, discoverable. Mm. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, well I, I can't count how many times I just by rote, you know, did the – I mean, I was an altar boy when I was growing up, so, I mean, I had I had ritual down, you know. Um, and so um, – but never really understood the – um, the reasons behind, you know, the establishment of the ritual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're, we're just well, past halfway through the show, ladies and gentlemen. We're about halfway through the show, so I'm going to take just a quick 90-second break. Um, then when we return, let's go ahead and we'll continue the conversation, okay? Great. Sounds good. Okay, great. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5 by 7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Hey, everyone. Thank you for staying with us. Again, today, my special guests are John M. Sweeney and Mark S. Burroughs, and we're talking about their newest book, Meister Eckhart's Book of Darkness and Light. And, again, you can find out more um, by visiting uh, John's uh, social media. Uh, He's on Twitter and Facebook at John M. Sweeney, J-O-N-M. S-W-E-E-N-E-Y. And you can also visit Mark's website, which is www.msburrows.com. And while you're on Mark's website, you'll be able to notice uh, that he is a co-director of a festival, poetry festival coming up, the Camden Festival of Poetry on May 20th. And for information about that particular festival, go to www.thepoetscorner.com org forward slash festival. Okay, we're back, John and Mark. And now, John and Mark, you are going to be doing a, a, a Zoom coming up. So, can Mark, can you tell us um, about that? Sure. On April 22nd, John is coming out from Milwaukee, where he lives, to Maine, 
and we're having an on-site but also a Zoom uh, kind of a morning retreat on this book and on Eckhart's uh, Wisdom. That's on the 22nd of April, Saturday the 22nd. And for a free Zoom registration, you can go on my website and there will be a link to the festival and you can register through Eventbrite. It costs nothing uh, but four hours of your time. It'll be a fabulous moment, um, chance for you to to hear what we've talked about a little bit here unfolded uh, in much greater depth and by both of us together. So that's April 22nd, beginning at 9 o'clock Eastern time uh, and concluding at 1 p.m. If you want to come but can't make that time, register anyway, and we'll send you the recordings of the talks. Great. Well, I'm going to be sure to register after today's show so that I can uh, take part in it because this is a, a, a wonderful topic. So, um, great. Thank you for sharing that. One thing up that we've sure. been talking about the days of knowing God, one of the things Eckhart was very clear on, because he gave a number of talks early in his life to the novices. He was a prior. He was 29 or 30 years old. And the young novices asked him, to give them a series of talks to help them understand what they were committing themselves to as Dominicans. They're, it's a marvelous little treatise on all kinds of, of very practical questions that might be raised. And one of the questions was this. Well, it seems like it's better to find God in a church or in my little room, you know, my prayer cell and my where I live. What do you say, Eckhart? And he says, well, absolutely not. Because if you can only find God in church, you miss the fact that God is not just there, but in every dimension of your life, in every place. So it's better to find God where you are than to assume that some particular place is the best place. And let me read a little poem that was inspired by that talk. It's called Serenity and Service. Something is, some think it, it's best to withdraw from the busy world and find an inner peace that is without distraction. But I say this, wherever, whatever serenity you find within your soul should open you to serve others in their need. This is the wisdom of the wayless way that will lead you to see that inner and outer serenity and service are not two, but finally one. And don't think this, but practice it here and now. The rest will follow. This is another one of those cases, Robert, where you can see that the the people who are in charge of the religious institution might be a little uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. But that's good. Make them squirm a little. <laughs> yeah. but, but it's, you know, um, the, the thing that um, strikes me most is the idea that the, the the knowing of God is is within each person and not dependent on anything or anyone else, you know, mm-hmm. to to gain that knowledge. And so, I mean, it was it's like it um, recognizes the the power of the individual to be able to, you know, no matter who you are, what you do, all of that kind of stuff, um, it, it doesn't make you more likely to be able to know God. Well, the, let me jump in on this one because um, there's a I, – I don't disagree with anything you said there, Robert. However, there's something about the way you said it that makes me want to respond by pointing out that there's a difference between the real Eckhart and the Eckhart that we present, that Mark and I are presenting, and what I would call sort of the New Agey Eckhart. Because the New Agey okay. Eckhart uh, is appealing to some because the, what, what's communicated is that um, God is available easily and for everyone um, without mm-hmm. effort and without and without um, any sort of initiative or or inner work. And that's not at all what Eckhart has to say. I mean, Eckhart is for all people who seek deeper consciousness of God's presence. Um, and I think he speaks so well for us in the 21st century because he has 
what one of the one of the great Eckhart scholars, uh, Bernard McGinn, calls a, a new vernacular theology for expressing what was medieval mysticism. And I think uh, a lot of us have learned a great deal from uh, Richard Rohr, which is probably a teacher familiar to a lot of your listeners. And he's focused us in recent years on non-dualism and how non-dualism is native to Christian understanding, not just to the understanding that comes from Eastern religious traditions. And so, and so Eckhart, these Eckhart teachings that we're talking about here rings true today for us. But all of that is to say um, – the uh, Eckhart's ultimate project is about the souls returning to the divine ground. The Grund is the German, and again, Mark is the German expert, but it's the Grund. It's the uncreated something that is in but not of the human soul, and it's also the groundless ground of both God and the soul. Um, God's ground and my Grund is the same, Eckhart said. And, and this radical emptiness that's required of us takes 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 work. I mean, so it's it's not that there's the sort of new age Eckhart of um, finally we can get rid of religion and we can just be spiritual. And Eckhart says that God is right there for us all the time, and so poof, boom, it's easy and it's done. There's a lot that we have to do interiorly. I mean, how do you get to that place of emptiness? How do you get to the place of pure nothingness in order to experience divine fullness. Well, I'm not there yet, and, 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 I, and I focus on it every day, and I have contemplative life and practice, and I, I, I'm, I'm trying to learn from Eckhart's teachings, and I'm trying to detach myself in all the ways that I can. But it's pretty tough. Um, so, anyway, my, this, this is my little mini-sermon to say that it's not easy. <laughs> No, no, and and in you know releasing you know all of those attachments, you know, or getting that ego out of the way, um, is not an easy thing to do. Now it kind of moves right into one other um, quote or thing that I was reading in the book that kind of stuck out at me, and that was the quote is the, the purpose of your life is not to find some map to tell you where to go but to see that your deepest longing is to catch a glimpse, at least, of how you are to go, whatever your path. So, you know, the idea of catching that glimpse, you know, I mean, you know, for for those who, you know, work at or, or you know, attempt to, you know, follow the way, way that, um, you know, at times, you know, we can maybe just catch that glimpse, you know, that it's, uh, you know, to be seen in a way, you know, that, that um, but, but it's, it, to me, it, it just struck me as, now, there, I have had a couple occasions where I have just, I mean, it has just been, I've gotten this kind of, you know, sense of oneness or, I mean, you know, it was, you know, it, it, it was, Hard to describe, but it was one of those things where I was like, oh, okay, you know, kind of like I, I, I get it, you know, but it was gone, you know. I mean, and truly, it was just a glimpse and a fleeting insight, maybe, I guess, you know, um, that, that, that I had had. And so, you know, to me, you know, it's, you know, the idea of that it's not where, you know, we are to go, but how we are to go, you know, so it brings it to the, to the present, you know, kind of the present moment, I guess. And that's so well said. I mean, in some ways what Eckhart is constantly reminding us of, and he is reminding us, I mean, he's an intellectual teacher. He's, he's a Dominican. And as John mentioned earlier, this is an order that prized learning above almost everything else. Not that they weren't serving people, but learning was the, the understanding, the use of the intellect was, was crucial for Dominicans. And Eckhart is not an exception to that. The question is, how do we apply our mind? How do we open our mind to see that God is present in everything that is, all around us, in every moment? And that may be a very simple truth, but it's not an easy one to apply. And I, I love, in, in one of Eckhart's sermons, 
he described our relationship with God something like he said developing an art uh, or learning how to speak a language, that it takes practice. You can't just decide I'm going to speak German uh, and hope for the best and hope that somehow the knowledge of German will somehow unconsciously come into your mind and you'll wake up one more and you'll be fluent in German. Well, it's wishful thinking. And wishful thinking is usually completely wrong. But here's how Eckhart described it. He, he coined a word in German which didn't exist uh, until he made it up. It's one that's so common in our language now that even in English we have this word breakthrough. Durchbruch in German. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a noun that existed, a breakthrough. You could break through things, but a breakthrough. But now it's a commonplace. But here, this is a poem called Learn to Break Through Things. Finding God, he said, is like learning to write. If you truly want to acquire this skill, you've got to practice long and hard at it, even when it seems difficult, if not impossible. You have to begin by learning how to form each letter, committing it to memory, until you no longer need to concentrate on it. It's the same with God. Learn to break through things to the point that you find God's radiance within all of them, even in the dark abyss of silence. Wow. Yeah, I was I was surprised when I read that. <laughs> he coined the, word, the term breakthrough. I thought, huh, now that's, yeah. you know, I mean, the fact that it's used so commonly now. Um, yes. Now, now, one one of the um, areas of uh, let's see, let me read this. Um, Eckhart dared to refuse conventional thinking. He risked exposing orthodoxies if they only dulled the mind into submission, um, because only by subverting foolish thinking can you get your proper bearings in this life. And that one, that one, that stuck out to me because. To me, it seems that in today's society, um, there's a lot of dumbing. I call it dumbing of, of America when I see it on TV. You know, that, that the idea of, um, you know, dulling the mind, you know, into submission. I mean, it seems that that is a um, – I mean, for those who look for that, it seems that that's uh, – it seems to be happening a lot, in, in my opinion. Um, now, and, and for those who, you know, are, you know, dulled, you know, or, you know, kind of actually, you know, commit to submission, um, it may not seem so. So, um, let's see, Mark, can you tell us a little bit um, about that? Am I um, kind of seeing things um and then, you know, that aren't there? <laughs> no, I mean, no. And I'll start this, and John, I'll, I'll welcome you to join in. This is a central issue for Eckhart, because if we only get our doctrine of God right in our brain, but it doesn't touch the way that we live our lives, then it's an irrelevant, an irrelevant thing for us. Because Eckhart was convinced that, that our life should be constantly being made new, being, in, in a sense, open more deeply to the compassion of God, to the wisdom of God, which unsettles us from, from conventional thinking, even religious conventional thinking or religiously conventional thinking. Because if we get the idea of God right, but, but continue to slam people with our arrogance, with our racist attitudes, with our, our petty um, selfishness, then what good is it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Mark? and, and I mean, so, so I'll I'll add by saying that Robert, uh, you used the word foolish. I think you used the word foolish in what you were reading, and and that immediately makes me think of you know the great the great figure from the century before Eckhart, uh, who I love so much, Francis of Assisi, and the whole tradition of the Franciscan holy fool. And I I'll, I'll just I'll just uh, contrast that a little bit with Eckhart's view, which is, I think, not so much the fool, the holy fool, as it is the uh, counter-cultural uh, mm -hmm. approach. 
more than counterintuitive, but countercultural. I mean, the idea of, of a radical emptiness is required to realize divine union. You know, why emptiness? Uh, particularly if you have sort of a Christian-trained mindset. That's not, that's not a term that even feels friendly to a lot of people. And, and, you, and Mark and I both, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming Mark, this is true for Mark, is in our teaching on Eckhart, get pushback from people on this all the time, that they have trouble with this idea of emptiness. It doesn't feel like an appropriate idea. But I think it's, it's not so much a theological objection. It's more like a countercultural objection. Um, so, so the Franciscan holy fool, you know, we have no stories like that about Eckhart. I mean, we, don't, we just don't have stories or anecdotes about Eckhart really at all. But we don't have those kinds of stories. You know, like with, with the Franciscan holy fool, they would demonstrate, uh, they would demonstrate virtue in, in foolish ways, ways that were foolish to, to the average person. So, for instance, when, when, a, when a friar was invited as the honored guest, uh, and as he's approaching town, he sees everybody who's waiting to have a parade for him, you know, with balloons and banners welcoming him to town because he's the the, the wonderful, holy, honored guest. And he decides that instead he's going to play with children on the seesaw and completely ignore them to the point where they're furious and they end up walking away thinking, this guy's a fool. But he's, but he's, he's trying to demonstrate a teaching about humility by doing that. We, we don't have those kinds of teachings about Eckhart. Instead, we have these teachings about pure nothingness and emptiness and and a life without qualities and without striving. So I think I think Eckhart appeals to people so much on this countercultural approach because so many people are religiously exhausted. And and Eckhart <laughs> says that your religious exhaustion is exactly what I'm speaking into and speaking for because you're going about it all wrong. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And 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 I noticed in, in the book that uh, you indicated that apparently um, Eckhart was one not to suffer fools lightly. <laughs> and uh, I, I've uh, known a few people who have been uh, have been uh, told that you know that it, that they are the same way. You know that they just um, did not. You know, Eckhart uh, um, along that line. Fine, Robert. Had a, he had a good sense of humor, and it, it, it's you only start to really to realize that if you stay with him and read deeply in him. But I'll give you an example of that. He often quotes what the masters are teaching in the schools to refute them. So he'll say, "Well, the, one master says this about God, and another master says this, and a third master says this." But I want to tell you that God is none of those things. And in one of those sermons, he lists four masters, and he doesn't tell you who they are, but the fourth master, which is the most ridiculous one, he quotes himself from an earlier time in his life, <laughs> and to say that, well, this master surely had no idea what he was talking about, because this is really the way you should think about this, or whatever it is, and I just found myself roaring with laughter, because some of the people probably knew that, that he wasn't taking himself so darn seriously that he couldn't realize that even he needed to be transcended. Even his thought was not absolute. It wasn't the, the pinnacle here that everybody should aspire to. You have to do that yourself, arming yourself of your own importance and the arrogance of your own selfish ego and opening yourself to the surprise of God who comes to you in ways you could never expect and might not actually want and might not actually desire because this God will not leave you the way you were, but will want you to change. Yeah. Well, humor can be very disarming, you know, and so, you know, it's um, uh, a great way to um, to be able to open people up to a message um, through humor. Um, yes, we're down to five minutes, but there's one more topic that I really want to cover before we run out of time, and that's the idea of darkness. Now, um, and, and John, maybe you can start with this one. Um, now, what um, – let me just kind of quote what I have from the book. The renderings reveal what it means to love God and find meaning in darkness. Eckhart dared to imagine that the darkness is what matters most. Um, I kind of was surprised at that. So can you tell us a little bit exactly, you know, how he meant that? Well, 
I, I think he meant it on a, on a very human level, a very psychological level, a level that anyone who has suffered, and we all have suffered uh, in life, can understand, which is that we learn much more from darkness than we do from light. When we are in light, we, we lie down, we feel the warmth, uh, we, love, we love to see the sky, uh, it makes us happy, it makes us content, but there's not much learning or depth or growth that goes on at those moments. The learning and the depth and the growth happen when we are in darkness, when we, when we cannot see. Um, I think of, you know, one of the great mystics of the last century, uh, Mother Teresa, you know, after her death, when her process of canonization was underway, we learned how she lived for a half century in darkness, wasn't even sure of God's presence, but yet lived that extraordinary life that she lived and did those extraordinary things that she did. Um, in her instance, it's almost more the darkness uh, was there as a block, uh, a challenge to her faith, to her discipline, to her faith. Mm-hmm. Eckhart means it, means it in a deeper way, a more psychological way, a more sort of, sort of psycho-spiritual way. But the darkness teaches us. Darkness teaches us more than light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, Eckhart, Eckhart draws on that marvelous, it's almost kind of a, a rabbinic midrash of, of Paul the Apostle on the ancient Genesis story where Paul writes in Second Corinthians, that that, uh, that God brings forth light out of the darkness. And that's such a, a counter-cultural way of thinking, because we think we need to push light into the darkness, to illumine the darkness. And in point of fact, John is quite right. There's something deeply psychological and spiritual about Eckhart's notion that the darkness own light. And for Eckhart, part of that was that he, he knew that in the darkest place in your life and in my life is this little... Spark. He called it a fruit line, a little spark of light. And, and as John mentioned earlier, this is the uncreated gift of God. It's not something we made. It's God being God in each one of us. And God never stops being God in each one of us. And where do we find that? But when we've given up on all the light outside of us, and we go into that darkest place of despair, depression, anxiety, fear, and we discover there that God is God in us. And that's the amazing point of discovering. Yeah, you know, you're right about the idea of the thought had been pushing light into darkness. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, after I after read the book, you know, it kind of gives one a different perspective of darkness. Because you go, um, so often in society, you know, darkness has a bad rap, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you don't want to be dark, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to go there, you don't want to be there, um, yet from there is where the, the greatest insight and growth can happen. Absolutely. I mean, there's an American poet who, the first line of one of his poems is priceless, precious. It begins like this, he says, in a dark time, the eye, E-Y-E, the eye begins to see. And and I think that's true, that we begin to see differently when we are, we usually don't choose darkness, but when we're forced into darkness, an illness, a loss, a grief, that we, we have to figure out who we are and how we're going to go forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, gentlemen, this has really been a fascinating conversation. I really want to thank you for your time. Um, I knew this was going to be a great conversation. Um, let, let's see. I uh, just want to remind the listeners that on April 22nd, you're going to have a Zoom, um, I don't know what you call it, but, but a Zoom gathering um, from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern, and they can register that um, on your, from your website, correct, Mark? Right, msburrows.com. MSBurrows.com. Great. Okay. Well, thank you, folks. And, and I'll, I'll be there unless something comes up. But I, I will, I'm glad that if something comes up, I can at least, by registering, be able to follow up on that later. So I really want to thank you both for your time today. 
Thank you. Robert. My pleasure, Robert. Thank you. You're very welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guests have been John M. Sweeney and Mark S. Burroughs. We've been talking about their newest book, Meister Eckhart's Book of Darkness and Light. And again, you can find out more again by visiting Mark's website, msburroughs.com. And then you can also connect with John, uh, who's active on social media, on Twitter and Facebook at John M. Sweeney, that's J-O-N-M-S-W-E-D-N-E-Y. And everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Herself. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.